Next up on the Mutual Audio Network, fiction from our future. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. After the Enforcer attack on the Rebellion in Mumbai, Senshin authorizes a strike force to infiltrate Nankatsu Laboratories to steal the computer files that will provide the answers as to who is behind the attack. Anton, Harlequin, McAllen and Tully fly to the remote Japanese island of Nishinoshima and split up into two teams to orchestrate the break-in. Anton and Tully are soon discovered and apprehended, but Harlequin and McAllen save them by posing as Nankatsu guards and proceed to break into the computer nerve center. Once inside the nerve center, the entire facility goes on high security alert, thus blocking any possible escape route for the team. After hacking the laboratory's artificial intelligence, the team transfers the secret file to a disc and proceeds to make a startling discovery. A sarcophagus-shaped keyhole is hidden in the back of the nerve center. Keyholes were teleportation devices used by immortals. More importantly, they discover that it is an active keyhole. With no other way out and guards about to burst in, the team escapes through the keyhole with no idea where it would lead them. After surveying their new surroundings, the team finds themselves in the Nankatsu Submersible Proving Grounds, a remote station 19,000 feet underwater. Anton examines the Nankatsu data files he stole and makes several remarkable discoveries. He learns that the monstrous enforcers were actually human test subjects that were kidnapped from Nankatsu Industries and exposed to perverse forms of mutated starstone and nuclear radiation, turning them into hideous superbeings. The minds of the enforcers were controlled by the Black Door Group, using a secret mind transference technology developed by Nankatsu Industries. Lastly, he learns that the Haiten Shi was constructed for the Chinese by Nankatsu to deliver a starstone to Leviathan deep in the Mariana Trench. But it is also learned that Black Door was able to sabotage the submarine, thus ensuring the Haiten Shi would never complete its mission. And now, Chapter 15, Breakouts. I am going to kill Jason Sterling. Anton, I certainly understand your anger, and you are more than justified in your emotions. But right now, our primary mission needs to be finding a way to escape. How much time do you think we have, Anton? For a change, time is something we have an abundance of. But we've sealed off any exits that anyone would- Actually, I humbly disagree. We just blew up one of the most important research facilities for Nankatsu Industries. It is my distinct impression that they will both notice their facility's destruction and want to apprehend those responsible for it. While we know that we are 19,000 feet underwater, we don't know where in the Earth's oceans we actually are. However, Nankatsu certainly does. And it won't take them long to get here somehow. We still haven't found a way out, and that makes us trapped, like sitting ducks. So once again, I humbly disagree, Anton. Time is something that we do not have an abundance of. Shut up, Harlequin. For all we know, Nankatsu and Black Door believe we died in the explosion as well. Care to gamble your life on that? Guys, guys, come on. We have to figure this out. What are our exit options? I suppose we can't go back the way we came. That fission bomb surely took out the entire research lab. The keyhole we came through was certainly destroyed. Once the link between two keyholes is severed, it can't be re-established. 
the plus side, that also means that nobody can follow us via the keyhole. Any other method will take slightly longer. If the research station was truly destroyed, then there's probably no record of us entering the keyhole to escape. So nobody knows where we are. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. Of course they know where we are. Anton, in going through the data files, were you able to find any reference to this station, these proving grounds? There's not much, but there is reference to several prototypes of the High Ten Sheet, as well as a sister ship called the Idrasil. There were also references to something smaller called Guardian-class submersibles, but I wasn't able to find any further information beyond that. <laughs> I'm going to guess some of those answers must lie beyond that pressure door on the lower level. Hey, uh, Anton, I don't know much about this Jason Sterling guy, but if he had anything to do with Oberlin's disappearance, I'm with you in taking this guy down. Whatever you need... Oh, don't to... be a fool, Mr. Tully. Of course he had something to do with it. The only question is, is your friend dead or alive? Black Door rarely leaves witnesses. Until I see a body, he's alive. Hey, come on. I'm with Tully. Everybody's gotta think positive until we know otherwise. Then let's hope that I still know how to pick a mechanical lock, because the only way out of here is through the door downstairs. If you'll excuse me, I leave you all to plot some juvenile revenge. Mission with Anton. Lost your nerve, have you, Quinn? Too much Bordeaux running through your polluted veins. Fuck him. It is a revenge mission. For Othello, even for your friend Oberlin. Our primary mission, my mission, is to shut down the Starstone whose malfunction is killing all of us. We just learned where the Starstone might be. That means we are exactly, precisely where we want to be. McAllen's right. Whatever is trying to hunt us down, whatever Jason Sterling is trying to do, is wrapped up in that Starstone. If we get control of that, then we can make that son of a bitch come to us. Over six hours passed. While Harlequin worked on unlocking the sealed hatch door on the lower level, Anton continued to study the stolen Nankatsu data files in the observation deck. Tully ransacked the underwater facility for any other exits, and McAllen had finally succumbed to sleep in one of the crew quarters. She awoke with a start. Huh. McAllen, get up. I think he did it. What happened? I was having this really vivid dream. There are these two people- Well, it's gonna have to wait. I think our resident cat burglar just jerry-rigged the door open. Come on, let's go look. McAllen and Tully ran down the corridor on the lower level. Harlequin stood triumphantly beside a scorched metal door hanging from its hinges. The walls around were blackened with streaks of soot. Well, turns out that my lock-picking skills may have grown a bit rusty. Forgive me, but it doesn't look like you picked the lock. No, no, I didn't. But I did find a tiny bit of C4 that seemed to do the trick. Well, whatever works. Let's go inside and see if we can find a way out of our underwater prison. The four of them stepped through the remains of the blasted door and were astounded at what they saw. They all stood on the fourth floor of a metal landing that wrapped around the room the size of three airplane hangars. It was now clear that the observation deck and the crew quarters where they had been transported onto were only a tiny fraction of this underwater facility. This room, this cavern, was its center of operations. The room resembled the submarine bay of Nankatsu laboratories, but several times the size. Countless underwater vehicles were suspended in the air by steel cables and loading clamps. One-man hovercrafts that resembled enclosed jet skis hung alongside blue spheres that had induction jets on all sides. My god, we're 19,000 feet underwater and this place is the size of Yankee Stadium. Amazing, I've never seen anything like it. I have. Come on, let's get downstairs. We need to check out those vehicles. They're the only way out of here. 
Three large features dominated the room. In the center lay a long strip of deep interlocking grooves resembling a zipper. The strip was several hundred feet in length and was situated under four massive ceiling-mounted cranes. McAllen, Tully, Anton and Harlequin ran to the end of the landing where a sliding pole shot down four stories to the main level. Once the four of them slid down, McAllen could see the purpose of the grooves. It was an airlock, an utterly massive one, but an airlock nonetheless. As she looked around, she saw several other airlock grooves in the floor, but none as massive as the center one. While the enormous clamps of the loading cranes hung empty, it was clear that something very, very big had been launched here. McAllen, come here, you've got to see this. Off to the left of the main groove were two parallel zipper grooves in the floor. They were the longest in the sub-bay, outside of the main one in the center. Above the grooves hung two submarines, each slightly larger than a city bus. They seemed to each be based on the same design, although there were clear differences between them. One seemed more streamlined in its design, while the other seemed to have several squatty protrusions off its main body. McCallum walked over to the underside of the streamlined submarine and saw bold blue letters emblazoned on its side. Guardian 1. The team all stared at each other for a moment, and then Harlequin sprinted over to a control console that stood against the wall. After typing furiously for 30 seconds, he shouted to the rest of the team. Get back! I have access transit operations. I'm going to lower Guardian 1 down and prep for launch. We're getting in that thing? Do you have a better idea how to rescue us, Mr. Tully? Yeah, maybe a note and bottle? Really? This thing is seaworthy at 19,000 feet? We'll find out. The submarine was lowered until it hung only a few feet above the grooved floor. A robotic loading ramp quietly rolled out from the corner. It sped past Harlequin and Anton and made a small course correction to get around McCallum. It gently rested against Guardian 1. I think the red carpet has been rolled out. Nice job, Mr. Harlequin. Thank you, Mr. Tully. Yeah, whatever. Come on, guys. Remember what Harlequin said. We need to get out of here as soon as possible. If we can... <laughs> McAllen collapsed to the ground in deadly pain. Her mind felt as if every neuron in her brain was exploding in flames. She felt like her soul were being ripped open and that a million voices, a million tiny fingers were picking at her. Another wave of excruciating pain hit. As it slowly subsided, McAllen could taste blood in her mouth. When she tried to get to her knees, the room began to spin and she vomited forcefully. McAllen, what happened? What's wrong? Star Stone. We must be close to it. I've never felt it hit so strongly. But McAllen, I can't help but notice that it struck you rather harder than the rest of us. It really is true about you. What? What do you mean? You are Evangeline's prodigal daughter. You share her DNA. The Star Stones are coded for her. That must be why you feel its signal stronger than the rest of us. I don't ever want to feel that way again. I can imagine. Here, let me help you. Anton, still weak himself, tenderly took McAllen's hand and helped her up. He walked with her to the side of the bay where a small water cooler was located. He took a napkin and wet it with cool water and then applied it gently to McAllen's forehead. I know what it feels like. I know how scary it is to have your mind blown open. But the signal also gives us strength. You'll feel it soon when the pain dies down. It's giving us life force. Too much of it to be sure, but this is what we feast on, McAllen. This is the source of your immortal strength. I know this may sound weird, but I don't feel like myself, Anton. I'm beginning to feel not human. Like You are not human. Not genetically, and not spiritually, if there is such a thing. We have to find the Starstone. Yes, we do. Come, 
If you're feeling better, we should hurry. I don't like agreeing with Harlequin, but he's right. The sooner we get out of here, the better. I feel better. Let's go. The team raced up the staircase and entered Guardian One's main cabin. The front of the submarine resembled the nose of a Formula One race car. The rest of the ship narrowed and then widened towards the rear of the craft. Rounded edges gave the ship an almost organic feel to it. A large, clear semisphere dominated the front of the ship, while a con tower stood high in the aft. Before entering the cabin, McCallum ran her hand over the surface of the hull and was surprised at the slipperiness of it. She pushed on it and felt it give slightly as if there was a layer of gel underneath the surface of the hull. Is this... Come on, McCallum, we gotta move. Tully swept her inside, and as soon as Anton and Harlequin entered, he shut the hatch door and settled over the cockpit. And who exactly said you were driving? I didn't realize I needed your permission. I've been driving submersible since you were, um, I don't know, only 200 years old or however old you are. I know my way around a sub. Based on the watercraft I've seen you associated with, a rusty bathtub with an outboard motor might be more your speed. You know, you just don't know when to quit, do you? I am done trying with you, buddy. If you want to settle Stop this- Stop fucking around. Both of you. We have got to get out of here now. This Starstone is killing us, so right now, the only thing that matters is getting to it and shutting it down. You can save your fucking pecker contest until we get back on dry land. In the meantime, Tully, you take the helm. I'll man the computer console. Harlequin and Anton, you guys work on navigation. After all, you two are the only ones who know where Leviathan is. Let's get this thing launched and do our jobs. You really must come and work for me. Put a sock in it. Guardian One shuddered as the floor beneath it separated along its grooves to reveal a large cavity that contained two giant pedestals that fit perfectly with the hull of the ship. The crane lowered the ship into the cavity before the floors, now the ceiling of the cavity, closed shut again. The four of them were now in darkness. Two giant bay doors opened and the cavity filled almost instantly with water. The ship groaned under the new pressure that 19,000 feet of water were exerting on it. I can't believe we're this deep. Hit the floodlights. Two giant lights on either side of the Guardian One's nose illuminated and shot two long beams of light out in the inky darkness. Where to? Forward and down. The ship swam through the darkness like it was streaking through space. There was no bottom, no sides, no reference point to give any sense of direction, only a compass heading that Geoffrey Tully had been following blindly. Together with Harlequin, he had obtained a rudimentary understanding of the ship's systems by poring through the computer and data files that Anton had stolen from Nankatsu. They activated a proximity alarm in case the ship were to suddenly run into an underwater mountain. Well... We're far enough away to get some kind of reading on our location. I agree. McCallan, I want to try to get a fix on where we are. Get on the computer terminal there and see if you can't punch something up for GPS. There should be some sort of locating software. I think I found it. It's spitting out some numbers. What it's, numbers? Um, 7 degrees by 17 hours, 33 minutes, spot 71, and 134 degrees by 50 minutes. Wait a sec. I know where we are. The only part of the ocean this deep in that region is the southern Philippine Sea. We're in the Palau Trench. Got it. According to the records in the databanks, the high tension never delivered its cargo. I'll bet it was destroyed while making its descent into Leviathan. Where and what is Leviathan? Anton gave a quick stare to Harlequin. Hmm. I guess the two of you don't know, do you? Leviathan is the stronghold that Evangeline created at the bottom of the Mariana Trench at over 35,000 feet underwater. What started as a temple grew to become an entire city, an immortal civilization. 
Using the Keyhole Network, Evangeline and her followers were able to recruit people from all over the Earth to become immortals, to join the Eden Initiative. Leviathan has existed there for almost 1,000 years. What? You're telling me that a secret civilization of immortals has been living at the bottom of the ocean for over a thousand years? I thought you guys just hid in your mansions in Beekman Place. Sutton Place, Mr. Tully. How come nobody's been able to discover Do it? Do you know how few vessels have ever descended into the Mariana Trench? Humanity knows far more about space than they do the deep ocean. It is the perfect place for us to reside, because literally no one can get to us. Well, if no one can get there, how are we going to do it? I don't know. We're going to have to get to the trench and see if we can figure out exactly what happened to the high tension. Right now, that's the best we can do. Harlequin, punch in a heading for Leviathan. The Mariana Trench is still pretty distant from our current location. I'm going to go back over the databanks and see if I can't learn more about the fate of the high tension and its starstone. McCallum felt Guardian 1 turn slightly to the right and head out on a northeastern heading towards the Mariana Trench. What's waiting for me there? What is lying in all that darkness so deep? What do you know now? If this is my destiny, why aren't you here? Several hours later. Are you okay, Anton? What do you mean? I mean, are you okay, Anton? Something seems to be bothering you. You look nervous. No, I mean, oh, I don't know. I haven't been near Leviathan in over 70 years, not since the Rebellion. Leviathan was a sanctuary and had been my home for a century. There was a time that I had never, in all my life, been happier than when I first came to Leviathan. I guess I am nervous about returning. As well you should be! So help me God, I'll kill you, Harlequin, if you say another word! Don't listen to him! What's there, Anton? What's, what has you so worried about Leviathan? You know what kills us, McKellen? What kills immortals? It's hubris. We're impervious to disease and aging, and our bodies are held static in their prime. We have riches and godlike technology at our disposal. Well, it becomes quite easy to begin to think that maybe you are a god. I told you before that you are no longer human, but the key will be to see how you relate to the rest of humanity. What you could possibly have in common with the concerns of mortals whose lifespans are so infinitesimally short. Well, Evangeline is not immune to hubris, and the last vestiges of anyone willing to stand up to her were either killed or left with us as part of the rebellion. Now she has had 70 years to grow isolated, nurtured by those that would only do her bidding or fear her wrath. Imagine an arms race that grows exponentially. We were always decades if not centuries ahead of humanity in terms of our technology. That means it accelerates that much faster. You think this could be a trap? The closer we get to Leviathan, the closer we get to a madwoman that believes that humanity is irrelevant in the pursuit of knowledge. She has turned our scientists into arms dealers and artists into assassins trying to kill any that would oppose her. Most of all, Evangeline will want to kill you, McAllen, because you are the one person that could threaten her monopoly on immortality. If it is widely known that you exist, then another rebellion could be started, and this one might win. She wants you dead before anyone else learns of you. Maybe I'm just being paranoid, or perhaps more dangerously, I'm being sentimental. I do want to go home, to the utopia we had deep beneath the sea where no one could find us or hurt us. Leviathan was my home, and it was taken away from me. <laughs> I guess it was truly Eden after all. It will be again, Anton. You'll see. Well then, we still have a long drive ahead of us, don't we? Good thing we found rations before we left. Thank you, McCallum. Thank, Thank you, McCallum. You're all welcome. Just don't eat them all at once. The way our luck is running, you never know when we'll see the surface again. The cabin fell quiet again. I suggest we all get some rest. Between our injuries, the starstone signal, and sleep deprivation. 
I think we'll give Ikora a run for her money getting us back up to snuff. I'm off to have a kip. With the autopilot activated, it'll take another 15 hours to reach the Mariana Trench at our current speed. No satellite or tracking device could locate us at this depth underwater, so we should be safe. At least until we reach the Starstone. So you think we got 15 hours of silent running ahead of us? At least. I'll take it. I'm gonna lie down too. Actually, Harlequin, Tully, why don't you take the first shift? Tully, you seem to have grown in your proficiency for piloting this vehicle and Harlequin, well... You do remember the way home, don't you? I'm so tired that I'm happy just to lie down here on the floor. Me too. Do be kind and wake me up in four hours. And then much to the annoyance of Tully, Anton sat down next to McAllen and closed his eyes. McAllen had already fallen asleep, leaving Tully and Harlequin on watch and driving Guardian One towards the deepest point on Earth. Meanwhile, back in the submarine bay of the Proving Grounds facility, a single light suddenly illuminated in the cockpit of Guardian Two. Guardian 1 has reached engagement theater. Initiate war game. Protocol 9. Begin weapons testing and launch procedure for Guardian 2. Testing completed. War game objective verified. Seek and destroy Guardian 1. Blackness. Thick, impenetrable. Blackness that allowed nothing to pass through it, yet seemed familiar all the same. It permeated everything in this small universe. And while he could experience nothing, he knew this place nonetheless. Even more so when he felt the blackness slowly give way to grey. Discrete shapes began to take form, and the most slender rays of light slipped through the barely open eyelids of Oberlin St. Clair. Consciousness, that elusive state that had been given and taken away so freely from him, had finally returned. Oberlin awoke and tried to quickly gather his surroundings. He was lying down on a metal bed frame. He tried to move, but he realized his hands were restrained at the waist and his feet were bound to the bedposts. The room looked modern, but sparse. Oberlin thought that the room resembled a medical examination facility more than a prison cell. But then again, his hands and feet were still tied if he needed any reminding. Oberlin strained his neck upwards to take in more detail of his surroundings. The walls were white with no windows and only one door, but a sleek black cabinet and desktop stood near the doorway. Various tools, instruments, and flasks of liquid were strewn across the desktop. <sighs> he squinted his eyes as points of light were reflected from the shiny objects that lay on the table. Those are too shiny to be mechanical tools. Maybe for computers or something. I don't like them. I don't want them in the room with me. I don't like them. They're evil. Therefore, for hurting or getting inside. Or cutting. No, it can't. <laughs> A man standing just under six feet high with brown hair entered the room carrying a black metal attaché case. He approached the table containing the sharp instruments and carefully placed the briefcase on the countertop. He began picking up some of the beakers of liquid and typed into a computer keyboard recessed in the wall. Hey! Hey, you! The man continued his work and paid no attention to Oberlin. Hey! Who are you? What am I doing here? <laughs> I'm not sure what's so funny. I asked you a question. Who are you? What am I doing here? I'm laughing because we've had this conversation about a dozen times. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I've never seen you in my life. <laughs> Good. That means the injections are working. What injections? What the hell are you talking about? Fucking let me go! <laughs> and that's exactly what you always do. I'm afraid you need to stay put for a little bit. 
I need to prepare another injection for you. The last one wore off a little sooner than I had anticipated. Your body must be developing a form of immunity to the psychotropic properties of the drug. What? Drug? It's something we use in combination with our interrogation techniques. The drug puts you to sleep and wipes out your short-term memory. (laughs) We've actually had this conversation several times, too, but you just don't remember. How long have I been here? Almost two weeks. Jesus. Two weeks? I've done my best to keep you comfortable. I've extracted just about all the information I can from you. You're not as useful as I'd hoped. Either you have the strongest mind, or you really don't know where McCallan Orsill and Jeffrey Tully are. Tully! Where is he? We don't know. Your friends keep popping up and then hiding back into darkness. They've managed to elude our powers of observation, which I might add is quite difficult to do. So then what do you need me for? I'm just a prisoner? I'd like to think of you more as collateral. Thanks. What is this place? Where are we? Now you're starting to ask a few too many questions. Oh, come on. You're the one that keeps erasing my mind. You could tell me anything and it wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter. Then there's no harm in it. Right now, I can barely remember my name. If you tell me where I am, maybe that will jostle some other memories I have here. Maybe I can help you with whatever you're- I don't want to take the risk that if you were to get- Come on. My arm looks like a piece of Swiss cheese you've been poking so many holes in it. You just said I keep forgetting all these conversations anyway. What is it that you're trying to do? You've obviously got a very serious purpose. I'm trying to save the world. That does sound pretty serious. And I'm guessing it's something that you're not getting a lot of help in. Let me help. Just- Tell me what's going on. What do you want to know? Where are we? We're in a communication ship called the Idrisil. Something of a floating fortress. And may I ask what ocean we're sailing in? (laughs) Such the sailor. No. No ocean. Think sky. The Idrisil is a very unique airship. Similar to what you may think of as a blimp. We're currently flying over mainland China at over 80,000 feet, encased in a radar-absorbent cloud comprised of a silicon nitride-based polymer. Nobody can see us, detect us, or find us. We are, to the rest of the world, invisible. We don't exist. I exist? We'll see for how long. What do you want with McAllen and Tully? He's a washed-up sailor, and that girl could never hurt- girl you mentioned may very well be one of the most dangerous individuals on the planet. She has the power to break the balance of power that has successfully limited the Immortals' numbers. If she unlocks Leviathan, hell will be unleashed on Earth. Immortals! What the hell are you talking about? There are Immortals among us. Unnatural, traitorous Immortals that are seeking to gain control of the world. Our job is to stop them before they have the chance. Who's we? Who are you? My name is Wit Roberts. I work for the Black Door Group. And what does Black Door do? Black Door protects. Oh, come on. That's a bit trite. The Black Door Group was created almost 70 years ago at the end of World War II to defend and protect American interests, both domestically and abroad, against threats outside the scope of traditional law enforcement. Twenty groups, or doors, were established, each door originally given a specific area of expertise to focus on, like surveillance, infiltration, assassination, medical research. Because of the group's secretive nature, only the President, Harry S. Truman, and the Secretary of State, James Francis Burns, were aware of its creation. 
In order to escape any congressional oversight, Blackdoor was expected to fund itself through its own initiatives. There's no governing body here, just every door for itself, with unchecked power and whatever resources it can steal, marshal, or pilfer from anyone or anything. With each department being utterly secret in its specialty and activities, the different doors began to compete for supremacy with each other. And which door is winning? Ours. Then what do you need Tully or me for? Why are we floating over China? We have a mission to protect a small group of individuals. It's an extraction mission. Funny. You don't seem like the rescuing type. For the right price. And how much feels right these days? It's not about money. The rewards here are something money can't buy. Is that what's in the briefcase then? Nope. That briefcase contains a very special device. What does it do? It allows us to talk to gods. Then could I borrow it for a second? As you can imagine, there's a few issues I'd like to raise with the Lord Almighty. If it makes you feel better, if I'm successful in my mission, then at least you won't have to worry about the devil. I'm not sure I understand every Everything you're saying, but if this mission is that important, then your actions are probably justified. I suppose higher good must be considered. You are protecting those who don't know they're in danger, who don't know they need protecting. You understand now? I don't like it, but I understand it. The Black Door Group exists for a reason. But could you do a brother a favor? What's that? Can you untie just one of my hands? I've got an itch that's killing me. I can scratch your nose if you need it. <laughs> it's not my nose, mate. <laughs> All right. Wit gave a wry smile and bent over Oberlin to unlock the manacle restraining his right arm. Now, I'm warning you, if you try to- <laughs> Oberlin shut his arm out, freeing himself fast enough to lock his forearm around Wit Robert's neck. You keep me locked up here for weeks? You fucking toy with people's minds? You think you talk to gods? I'll make sure you meet one soon enough. Wit was no weakling, and he tried desperately to get his legs underneath him to pull up hard against his attacker. Oberlin's strength was fading, weakened by the non-stop infusion of psychedelic drugs and being motionless for days. He gripped Wit's neck so hard that he was losing feeling in his hands. A few more seconds and he would have to let go. Wit would escape, his only chance to... Wit finally lost consciousness and collapsed on top of Oberlin. Quickly, Oberlin used his free hand to snatch the keys from Wit and freed himself from the bed. He pushed Wit's body aside and tried to stand up but instantly collapsed into a heap on the floor. Oberlin's joints and muscles had atrophied and every movement felt like agony. He grabbed the bed rail for stability and slowly raised himself off the floor. Walking was possible but painful, but the alternative, remaining a prisoner, was far worse. He forced himself to walk despite the pain shooting out from his limbs. He staggered towards the door and before he could shut and lock the door to his holding cell, he saw something. The briefcase. It allows us to talk to gods. He snatched it off the counter and slammed the door behind him, spinning the locking mechanism to keep Whit Roberts trapped as he had been. He found a shoulder strap and slung the attaché case across his torso. The hallway he found himself in was tunnel-like and had small portholes on the right side. He peered through one but could only see Cloud. That Whit Roberts wasn't kidding. This is some sort of ship. 80,000 feet, my god. How the hell am I going to get off this thing? Oberlin looked up and saw a set of pipes leading down the corridor. If this is a ship, I know ships. Those look like high-pressure valves that probably control outward thrusters and are... Hot to the touch. If I follow them, they should take me to the nerve center of the craft. Oberlin felt unsteady on his feet and leaned against the corridor wall as he walked. His weakened state didn't allow any accommodation for stealth. If anyone was nearby, 
He was dead. That looks like some sort of a hatch over there. I can't open a hatch in this altitude. I'll be sucked right out. But a hatch might be close to some sort of control room or cockpit. Ah, I must be near it. Oh, my eyes won't focus. What does it say above the hatch? Emergency escape pod. This is it. This is my ticket out of- Jason. McAllen? Oberlin followed the sound of the garbled message. A few yards further, the corridor turned left and opened into the enormous 30-foot-high bridge of the Idrisil. My god. A V-shaped console angled towards a 20-foot-high sheet of curved clear plexiglass that stretched across the front nose of the cabin. He gripped the side of the console for balance, but it became immediately clear that the ship was designed to be piloted by one person. All the controls and levers were within arm's reach. He sat down and was amazed at the view before him. The wind was utterly enormous, and he leaned forward in the command chair to take a look. Oberlin could still only see clouds outside, but every so often, a tiny wisp of sky would break through and illuminate the shining chrome controls that sat on the helm station. This must be the bridge. Oh, it's huge! Why would they make it so high? Oberlin soon got his answer. He turned around and saw the rear of the bridge was elevated some ten feet off the main floor. My god. The raised platform housed several laboratory tables. Beakers and vials filled the shelves, while microscopes and trays of hypodermic needles occupied the lab surfaces. On the left, Oberlin saw a massive series of shelves and cabinetry similar to the one in his holding cell, only more extensive. Beakers, test tubes and racks of sealed glass containers with strange foreign writing littered the platform. On the right of the elevated platform was a large wraparound desk in front of a giant bank of computer monitors. Several microphones and sets of earphones lay behind scores of dials and switches. Wait, this is Jason. Oberlin approached this bizarre array of scientific equipment where the strange voice was emanating. My god, fucking bloody mad scientist. This is what Wit was talking about. A laboratory and listening station 80,000 feet above the earth, hidden in some cloud. Of course he wants it to be hidden. Whatever work he does here must be hidden from the rest of the world. No wonder Black Door built this place. I wouldn't go near those if I were you. Oberlin froze. Whit Roberts stood at the entrance to the room, holding a Walther P-99 handgun, pointed directly at Oberlin. You might as well shoot. I told you, you are collateral. One that I really don't care to see damaged. We can make this easy. I've knocked you out and sedated your mind, but you haven't been harmed. You haven't felt pain. I know that you're mixed up in something you don't understand that has nothing to do with you. This really doesn't have to be unpleasant. Give me the briefcase and go back to your cell. Is this your secret laboratory? You get to play crazy bartender to every concoction outlawed by the Geneva Convention and civilized society? Eavesdrop on any conversation in the world you see fit to? Stay away from the console. You're going to shoot me, Wit? Oh, you must want me alive for something. Uh, uh, one more step and I'm putting a bullet directly through your kneecap. <laughs> Kneecapping? I don't think you've got the guts or the aim. I can assure you Oberlin that I- Oberlin leapt over the console. He reached his hand over the top of the controls and blindly pulled whatever levers he could find. 
Shots bounced off the console and Oberlin felt his pinky get blown off his hand and skitter across the floor. The ship suddenly lurched hard to the left, tilting the entire room 30 degrees to its side. Whip Roberts was thrown to the floor. The cabinet door of the laboratory flew open, throwing glass vials full of flammable liquid everywhere. Noxious fumes began to permeate the cabin and explosions began sounding off as the contents of Whip's secret laboratory were now being scattered and mixed across the bridge. You imbecile! I will obliterate you! I'll turn your mind into jelly and have you living in a nightmare for the rest of your life! Warning. Maximum turn angle exceeded. Activating autopilot. Initiate course correction. Oberlin ran over to Wit's fallen body and picked the pistol out of his hand. He brought down his fist like a hammer across Wit's face again and again. Fires were growing around them and more explosions could be heard near the listening station. Motherfucker! Wit jerked to his side and brought his leg across the floor, sweeping over his shin. Wit quickly rolled onto Oberlin's chest, pinning his arms down. He wrapped his hands tightly around Oberlin's throat. Stupid asshole. Who do you think you are? Don't you know that the world is at stake? Oberlin uh, thrashed his body violently while Whit tried to squeeze the life from him. His vision was starting to gray out at the perimeter. His hand desperately reached up, straining, reaching, grabbing for something, anything he could feel. Flesh, loose, he tore down hard. Color began to flow back into Oberlin's field of vision as he looked down to see a wet piece of flesh lying in his hand. He had torn off Whit Robert's ear and left him clutching the right side of his head as blood poured from his open wound. Oberlin tried to get to his feet as quick as he could, but the room still felt like it was spinning from his oxygen deprivation. Flames had now erupted in pockets of the bridge, including the left half of the helm. It was becoming an inferno. Autopilot now offline. Fire suppression offline. Operational tolerances exceed. Oberlin stood and grabbed the command console for balance. By the time he looked up, Wit was standing up as well, sneering at him. Wit had found the pistol and it was pointed right at Oberlin. You've got me. I surrender. You wish it could be that easy. I'm going to fill your blood and mine with demons you've never dreamed of. Oberlin's hand inched towards the helm controls. Just leave my mind alone, and I'll tell you where Tully is headed. I know where he goes when he needs to lay low and hide. Still just inches. You know nothing. I've already blown through your fucking mind like a typhoon. Then just shoot me, you fucking coward! Oberlin's fingertip grazed one of the control levers. He took the chance and yanked the lever backwards as far as it would go and felt the entire bridge lurch forward. Shots rang across the roof. Oberlin couldn't tell if he was hit. Blood was still gushing out from where his lost finger had been. His clothing was covered in warm, sticky blood, both his and Wits. But now Oberlin realized what he did. The rear altitude jets exploded in full thrust, pushing the hydrosil, a 600 feet long blimp, up on its nose. Everything in the bridge began to come loose and collapse as the rear of the craft began to rise higher, much higher than the front. Oberlin clutched onto the control console for dear life as the room was now at a greater than 45 degree angle heading, plunging downwards. Whip hurled past him and crashed into the giant plexiglass window in the front of the bridge that was now becoming its floor. The entire contents of the laboratory were ripped from the platform and hurled across the bridge, collapsing all around Whit. The hydrosil was coming apart. Fucking idiot! Don't you realize what you've done? Ridden the world of another asshole nobody wants to deal with. Whit Roberts' bullet shattered his left collarbone. Whit was now pinned against the glass as the hydrosil approached being pointed fully vertically down. The ship was careening out of control and fell out of the self-cloud it surrounded itself with. The blimp tumbled end over end as flames erupted everywhere on the bridge.
The two men were tossed like limp dolls around the room. Oberlin was catapulted across the room and back into the corridor. His good hand grabbed a hold of something solid, a handle of some sort. The room was spinning viciously, but the letters looked familiar. What? E-M-E. Emergency escape pod. Oh my god, this is it? The Idrisil flipped back over on its side again as it went from tumbling end over end to rolling over on its axis. The sudden shift threw Oberlin's body backwards, but his grip stayed sure. Being pulled backwards forced the hatch door open. As he pulled himself inside, his last vision was whipped, holding onto one of the banisters while his body flapped against the wall like a burning flag. His right leg was on fire and for a split second he caught Oberlin's gaze. Whit opened his mouth to say something, but then lost his grip and was flung forcefully back against the giant plexiglass window, which was now cracking under the stress and heat. The ship was now pointed straight down again, and Oberlin could see Lingshang Mountain rapidly approaching under Whit Roberts. Oberlin dropped back into the escape pod and punched a red button that read eject. The hatch door sealed behind him and exploded off the main body of the Idrisil. Oberlin's stomach dropped as the capsule entered freefall before the drag chute deployed, slowing the capsule down to a stable velocity. Out of the porthole window, he could just make out the Idrisil. It was still tumbling through the air like a football in a bad spiral. The massive blimp looked to be heading almost straight down and Oberlin could make out small pockets of flame now erupting from the main cabin. So much for your stealth blimp. Wit Roberts. When the escape pod reached an altitude of 3,000 feet, a larger parachute canopy deployed, slowing the capsule to under 10 feet per second. The escape pod touched down to Earth with a very small splash. Oberlin pressed the button to reopen the hatch door, letting fresh air blow through the cramped cabin. He stepped outside and immediately sank six inches into the mud. Small men in conical hats were shouting and approaching rapidly from the south. Oberlin Sinclair had landed in a rice paddy. So, this is China. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com. Hello, everyone. This is Christoph, author and creator of the Leviathan Chronicles, and you've just finished listening to Chapter 15, Breakouts, featuring the return of Oberlin St. Clair, our mild-mannered engineer, who has quite the roller coaster ride ahead of him. So it's been a while since we've spoken. We have a new president and a new episode of the Leviathan Chronicles, each equally important to the future of this nation. And this week's soapbox is going to be a little bit quicker than normal. I have a couple things I want to go through, a couple promos, and some expo news coming up. So I'm just going to dive right into it. The first promo I want to do is for Geek Cred. Geek Cred is a terrific podcast put out by Steve Rickyberg, who has been a tremendous supporter of the Leviathan Chronicles. Geek Cred is a podcast about geek culture. It features interviews with people that are the movers and shakers in podcasting, science fiction, fantasy, computers, anything science fiction related. Steve's been covering that. I really enjoyed listening to some of the earlier episodes of Geek Cred because it features a lot of the podcasters that you've heard me talk about in the past. And it's really interesting to hear how 
a lot of the early pioneers of podcasting got started and used podcasting to promote their artistic endeavors, whether it's uh, written books or whether it's artwork or gaming or other science fiction projects. You should check out the website, www.geekcred.net. Take a look at not just the current episodes, but if you peruse back and see some of the earlier episodes, I think you'll see some names you recognize, including yours truly. So without any further ado, this is the promo to Geekred. Do you drool over the latest cutting-edge technology? Are you the first in line for the latest sci-fi movie? Do you stay up late at night playing video games? Do you consider being called a geek a badge of honor? Then Geek Cred is the show for you. Join me, Steve Rickyberg, as I bring you behind-the-scenes interviews to give you the inside scoop on everything geek. From tech to sci-fi to games, you name it, we geek it. Geek Cred. Are you geek enough? To download and subscribe, visit www.geekcred.net and get your geek on. All right, that was a promo to Geek Cred. Props to Steve Rickyberg, creator of Geek Cred, and he is an awesome guy, an awesome dude, and has been an awesome supporter of Leviathans. So in other news, this weekend is the Big Apple Comic Book and Sci-Fi Expo. I have never actually attended a Sci-Fi Expo. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, the closest thing that I can relate to is a store in New York called Forbidden Planet, which is probably one of my favorite stores in New York. It's gotten to the point where my friends literally won't go to the store with me because I'm like Templeton the Rat in Charlotte's Web. I love going through the store and like coming on these obscure comic book titles. Like, oh wow, I didn't know She-Hulk was in Fantastic Four. All this cool stuff that I could spend hours and hours and hours reading, perusing, going through, and just completely geeking out on. So I'm really looking forward to the expo, to kind of seeing kind of what's uh, what's the latest and greatest in sci-fi is. But more importantly, I'm actually using it as a test run to get a sense of these conventions because the big show, the New York Comic Con, is coming in February. And I really want Leviathan to have a strong presence at New York Comic Con. And I'm not exactly sure what the best way to go about it is. And I know there's some great ideas of me dressing up in a Wookiee costume and having a cadre of Princess Leia slave girls follow me around and being the Wookiee pimp of New York. But I really want to come up with a way to not just expand the audience, but maybe get in touch with some other people in the media world. One of the ideas that I've been sort of thinking about for Leviathan is, in addition to the audiobook, maybe trying to do some sort of a graphic novel. I love some of the visual elements that I try and describe, and I actually have some pretty strong ideas of the type of comic book art that I like. More on that in a future episode. If any of you guys have any suggestions, if you guys have gone to Comic-Cons before, I would really like to hear your suggestions of how to make the best presence. Okay, another promo that I'd like to tell you guys about is something called The Moth. I actually feel kind of cool about this one because it is now one of the top 10 podcasts in iTunes, and I knew about it when it really wasn't that discovered yet. This is a little different from the the sci-fi genre that we stick with here. For those of you that want something really thought-provoking, I I really recommend it. The website is www.themoth.org, and I'll have all of these links in the show notes. The Moth is spoken word series, similar to a poetry slam, except it's a story slam. It is a forum in which people go on stage without any notes and have a very short period of time to tell a story. These are performances that are done live in New York and LA, and I think a couple other places. The best ones are recorded and provided as a podcast, and some of them are funny, some of them are sad, um, and some of them are just really thought-provoking, and it's something that is just really taking me by surprise. I've actually attended some of the Moth events in New York, and I'm pretty close to actually considering getting up on stage to to do some of the performances. I think I've got a couple good stories in me. We actually don't have a promo for The Moth, but again, go to the website, themoth.org. It'll be in the show notes. 
Now, I know that I don't need to tell you guys that I am the sci-fi god of New York City. Not a lot of people know that, but you guys definitely know that. And as you might remember, several episodes ago, I talked about a magazine that asked me to participate in their launch issue. And that magazine is called Celebrity Ping Pong. Now, I don't know what's been going on in New York, but it seems like ping pong has become like the new polo. And the idea behind it is that you would be interviewed while playing a game of ping pong and be so focused on the game that the answers you would give would be much more forthcoming and candid. And I've been trying to get a copy of the magazine to be able to show with you guys. And I finally got it in a PDF form. So I'm going to be posting the link to download the inaugural issue of Celebrity Ping Pong in the show notes. Go check it out. You go to our website at leviathanchronicles.com. Look under the surface section. There'll be a link for you guys to download the PDF there. It's kind of fun. They took some uh, some way cool photos. They had a film crew there. It's kind of neat. So that is just about it for this week's Soapbox. And I'm not sure if we're going to have another episode out before Thanksgiving. We're going to be pushing really hard to do that. But I really want to use this opportunity to give thanks, not just to all of the fans. You guys are so awesome. I read all of your emails. They all mean the world to me, but also to my friends and family who have supported me on this crazy endeavor of trying to create the coolest audio drama ever to hit the internet, to all the people at Silver Sound, to Eric Czar, our musician, to Nobi Nakanishi, the incredible director that has seen me through this entire journey, to my brother who has been the best sounding board that I could have ever hoped for when it comes to writing the Leviathan Chronicles, who always encourages me, don't write bad sci-fi, write good sci-fi. And lastly, to my wife, who has been so supportive, so great, and the best partner in this crazy journey. I hope you guys have a terrific holiday with your family, with your loved ones. I will see you all in two, I hope. You're listening to Wednesday Wonders on the Mutual Audio Network, where you can enjoy the wonders of the imagination. And speaking of wonders, everybody wonders why the Bells in the Bat Free podcast is still plugging along, not only on Friday Follies, but a bunch of times on Sunday Showcase as well. Give Bells in the Bat Free a listen sometime, and you'll wonder how he gets away with some of that stuff. Rated G, family friendly. Caution, occasional toxic puns.